Welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and on today's episode, we sit down with Dave Gilboa. Dave is the co-founder and co-CEO of Warby Parker, a retailer of prescription glasses and sunglasses that he started with his three friends from college in 2010. Today, Warby Parker is valued at over $3 billion, and they've truly changed the game when it comes to buying glasses online and in-store. We spoke with Dave about what it was like growing up in between Southern California and Sweden, his early career as a consultant and investment banker, his experience getting his MBA at Wharton, and if he would recommend it to others who desire to be entrepreneurs, the story of how Warby Parker came to be and the opportunity he saw in the eyewear market, co-founder dynamics, and his thoughts on the future of the company as well as the industry. Here we go. Dave, thanks for being on the show with us. We're excited to have you and uh, learn a lot more about your uh, entrepreneurial journey. So uh, we like to always uh, start it off and set the tone with learning about your early days and your background. Uh, we know you were born in Sweden. So tell us a little bit about your childhood and uh, what that was like. Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was born in Sweden. Uh, my dad grew up in LA. My mom's Swedish. They met studying abroad, and my dad ended up moving to Sweden and stayed there. And I was born along the way, and uh, we ended up moving to San Diego when I was six. Uh, but grew up in a bilingual household, dual passports. Uh, spent a bunch of time traveling, and uh, both my parents are doctors, and they really love their jobs. Um, so. Uh, growing up, I was 100% sure that I was going to become a doctor as well. The only uh, kind of choice uh, I was thinking about was uh, w- which type of doctor. Uh, I think both my parents found a lot of meaning and, and continue to find uh, a lot of meaning and satisfaction through their work and ability to help people. Uh, they're, they're both still working. My dad keeps uh, kind of violating the mandatory retirement age that uh, uh, they have at, um, at, at his uh uh, hospital group, and um, you know, I think they, um, you know, instilled in me the importance of kind of using your profession to to help people and make the the world better. And and um, yeah, I think they also view their uh, kind of education and ability to um, to become doctors uh, as an opportunity to create financial stability, create opportunities for me and my sister, um, and. Uh, so yeah, I think that uh, was certainly a big influence as I was thinking about what to study and and how to think about where to work. I ended up going to Berkeley, was a bioengineering major, so I took all the pre med classes um, uh, along with uh, so, some other classes. Took the MCAT, was kind of um, all, all set to kind of follow in my parents' footsteps and. I was at Berkeley at a pretty interesting time. So uh, I was a freshman in the fall of 99. Um, so kind of the height of the uh, first internet bubble and you know, being uh, really right uh, next to Silicon Valley, there was uh, kind of a lot of uh, uh, hype around the, the new economy and how, can, how technology could be uh, used in new and unique ways. And then um, a year later, uh, that a bubble had deflated and the economy was in a pretty bad place and particularly in the, in the Bay area. And, um, uh, you know, as I talked to a number of my friends who were, um, uh, at, at Berkeley at the same time, um, uh, most of them were going into kind of non healthcare or non science professions. A lot of them were going to work at banks or consulting firms. And, uh, they basically said that, Hey, um, 
uh, all these companies are just looking for smart people. It doesn't matter uh, if you haven't taken any business classes. And then as I was talking to some of my uh, parents' friends um, who, were do- who were doctors, um, realized that um, they were increasingly dissatisfied with some of the trends that were happening within the healthcare world, in particular, kind of the rise of HMOs and managed care. And um, doctors felt like they weren't spending as much time um, uh, really focused on serving patients. And um, so that uh, kind of for the first time um, opened my eyes to uh, kind of different paths and realized that um, maybe there was an opportunity to do something uh, to help people um, without becoming a practicing physician and, and that maybe learning something about business uh, would be kind of a, a helpful um, uh, path uh, uh, to kind of enable that, that goal to unlock over time. Okay. And Dave, thank you for that intro. And I think it set the stage for, you know, what happened obviously after that. But, you know, just to kind of take it a couple steps back, uh, you know, do you remember any of your time in Sweden? Uh, and, and I know you said you came back here when you were six, uh, but what was life like there? You know, were your parents already doctors? Were they studying to be doctors? Uh, and, and what kind of an influence did that have uh, when you moved back to SD? Yeah, so uh, both my parents were already doctors. Uh, you know, I, I remember kind of little snippets of you know being a, a kid growing up in Sweden, and then we used to go back there almost every summer. Um, still have family there. My grandma, my aunt, uncle, cousins are all still there. Um, we had a bunch of, of good family friends, and so um, you know, spent a good uh, chunk of my my childhood uh, in in Sweden, um, and. You know, it's a it's a pretty interesting culture where, um, uh, you know, given the the climate and uh, kind of the government and and tax structure, um, summer times are a really special place there. So there's snow on the ground about nine months a year, and so people really appreciate uh, the, the sunshine. Um, and uh, given um, the kind of the high taxes and uh, the um, uh, all the benefits that governments uh, provide and protections that they have for, for workers, people have a lot of time off. And so um, most people kind of take uh, several weeks off in the summertime. And, and so, um, you know, was, uh, we would we would go back there in June, ju- July, um, kind of our, our family and friends would have, um, you know, several weeks off. And uh, it was always kind of a, um, a really delightful uh, time as as a child, uh, just to uh, spend time there, um, and I think you know probably being exposed to that culture early on, um, you know, probably influenced uh, you know a lot of um, you know my thinking about um, you know how how different societies can uh, can can live and um, and um, you know served as a as you know in a lot of ways a nice contrast um, to. Uh, you know, kind of some of the um, uh, observations I had uh, growing up in in uh, California. What other things were you interested in as a kid? I'm curious, like, you know, obviously you, you said you obviously were thinking about going to medical school and becoming a doctor eventually, but were you interested in other things that could have been another route for you perhaps at the time? Uh, so, you know, broadly, just really interested in kind of science and math and anything in, in that realm, uh, fascinated, but just by kind of that, how the human body would work, I would, uh, you know, go 
um, spend a day shadowing my parents or um, other doctors that they worked with uh, just to kind of understand what um, what they did. And I uh, was always just a really curious kid and would ask a million questions and uh, just annoy uh, whoever I was, I was shadowing for the day. Um, uh, but yeah, I was kind of all within that, that world uh, of healthcare and, um, and, um, you know, uh, with the understanding that if you can prove, if you can improve other people's health, that you're, uh, by nature making the world better and, and, um, kind of doing, doing your part. Dave, when you decided to no longer pursue, uh, medicine as a career, uh, was it disappointing to you or were you excited about uh, what could potentially come next? I'd say it wasn't disappointing to me. I certainly disappointed my parents and you know, I think they're, they're still hoping uh, I'll go back to med school one day. You know, at the, at the time I, I took the, uh, the MCAT uh, in the exam, you need to, to um, get into med school. I took that my senior year and, you know, part of the rationale and justification I had to them uh, about not going immediately to school, but uh, going to work at Bain uh, strategy consulting firm was that my MCAT scores were good for five years. And so I always kind of, uh, you know, left that, that option open, uh, even though in my mind, I knew that it was you know probably unlikely that I'd go down that path. Um, you know, I think it was, um, you know, a little bit uh, daunting to veer off that path. You know, uh, I think there's a very um, clear journey ahead. If you, uh, graduate from college, go to med school, then, uh, you know, residency and, um, and you kind of know what that path looks like. And I was on that path and then I veered left and, um, you know, it was intentional to, um, uh, kind of give me exposure and some skills that, uh, would create more optionality over time. But, um, yeah, at the same time, um, it left a lot of ambiguity and, and, um, you know, I think it was probably a mix of, um, yeah, some trepidation, but uh, more excitement about what uh, kind of that universe of possibilities could look like um, that I hadn't been considering for kind of most of my childhood. Yeah. You know, it's funny because uh, so I went to undergrad business school and it wasn't until business school when I even learned about consulting and what it was, you know, when half the kids in the classes are saying, you know, I'm going into consulting and the other half are going into investment banking. And so, uh, you know, as a kid, maybe like when you start learning about careers, you feel like to consult, you have to have like 10, 15, 20 years of experience to know what you're doing that, you know, a company would hire you to actually try to fix whatever issues they're going through. And so, you know, from your perspective, because we've had a lot of guests on the show who had consulting backgrounds as well, but from your perspective, why do you think, you know, these consulting firms hire straight out of college? And what was your experience like? Like, did you have to go through a lot of training? Like, not that you didn't know, obviously, what you were doing, because you had learned that in school. But it's more like, you know, when it comes to the concept of consulting businesses, like, how does how does that work um, at such an early stage in the, in your career? Yeah. And to be clear, I had no idea what I was doing. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I think the, and yeah, I remember having a conversation with my grandfather, um, where I'd graduated from college and I had this job that I, you know, I was pretty uh, proud of. And, um, and he was asking me, okay, well, what do you make? What does your company make? And, you know, I was trying to explain that we don't actually, you know, physically produce anything other than you know, at the time it was PowerPoint slides and, uh, you know, Excel models. And, 
um, just, you know, he, he just kind of can grasp that um, I worked for this company that didn't actually make anything, um, you know, but I, I think, um, you know, organizations like Bain and BCG and McKinsey and others, uh, they do a phenomenal job of, um, you know, really uh, thinking about people as, as their assets and um, they need to find uh, great people who are, um, smart and curious and, and want to learn. And then they have amazing training programs and, um, and they put you on a team where, uh, you can learn from, uh, your superiors. So, um, there's kind of an apprenticeship model. Um, there are various components of kind of any, um, you know, large consulting project where there's going to need to be kind of some manual effort and, uh, Excel modeling and making slides and, and things that, yeah. um, you know, you're going to want someone who's sort of the, the lowest on, on the totem pole. And, uh, but, um, you know, through the experience of creating those decks and understanding the rationale that goes into it and being, you know, initially a fly on the wall and then leading some of those conversations, um, I think it's a, an amazing opportunity to just get exposure to, um, you know, incredibly bright people who are, you know, senior at those organizations, but also uh, really understand. Um, the types of challenges that large organizations that are hiring the Baines and McKinsey of the, of the world are, are trying to solve. Um, uh, and so um, I think you you get um, uh, a lot of exposure in, in a very short time period, and it builds a really great foundation on how to uh, kind of identify uh, problems in a strategic manner, break them down into smaller pieces, and, um, and then you know, be really resourceful uh, to think about um, where you can access data or inform um, kind of your team or, or the company uh, around various aspects that might not be available through kind of a third party research report. So, you know, part of you know, my job in the early days was cold calling uh, you know, uh, uh, customers, cold calling competitors, trying to get um, just, you know, tidbits of information that could shape um, our perspective on a particular issue that might not be obvious. And, um, and kind of having to think out of the box and creatively uh, to, to craft solutions. And so, um, yeah, I, I overall had, had a, an amazing experience at Bain. and I think it served as a, a great foundation for um, uh, kind of entrepreneurship and, and um, really understanding um, what uh, um, kind of uh, challenges larger organizations uh, need to think through. So Dave, speaking of entrepreneurship, you know, were you the kind of person growing up and, you know, I know you were trying to pursue medical school and that's not always super entrepreneurial because I was there myself at one point. Um, you know, after that, were you the kind of person or even during that time that would always come up with these ideas or identify problems and solutions to those problems? Or were you just very dead set in that moment on medical school or when you were at Bain on Bain? Or were you always trying to think of the next thing? Like, what else can I do? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you know, I think I always had uh, you know curiosity and was you know interested in technology and um, it, you know I think one example of that uh, when I was in junior high, um, you know, this was still back in the dial-up modem days where we had an AOL kind of a you know a household AOL account uh, where we had five hours a month of dial-up access and it would you know block the phone line so no one would call. Uh, could call when you're using the the internet um and this was before napster and i uh, called into a radio show and um i won a cd rom burner 
which was kind of this uh, yeah, pretty new piece of technology and um, something. I, I was, remember yeah, those. Yeah, I think I was 12 or 13 that I would never would have been able to buy on my own. But um, I won this uh, from a radio show. And then I would go in uh, these chat rooms, kind of these IRC chat rooms, and you could upload uh, MP3s. Um, and it would take 30 to 40 minutes to upload or download a single song. Um, and you could trade these songs with other people. And uh, at the time, Dawson's Creek was like the hottest show on TV, at least for the junior high set. Um, and so I, cre- and they didn't have a soundtrack. So I created the, um, uh, what I called the official Dawson's Creek soundtrack, uh, mocked up some graphics and had them printed out on my parents' dot matrix printer. Uh, bought a bunch of blank CDs and blank CD cases, uh, bought some shrink wrap, and I would uh, kind of I bartered for 15 songs, started burning these CDs, printed out the um, the cover art, would use my mom's hair dryer to, use it, uh, to shrink wrap the CDs so they look official, and then I'd um, sell them on eBay, and uh, they were going for like nine, 90 what? to 100 bucks a pop. Um, Wasn't the main theme? Uh, this is like I don't want to wait for yeah, that. There you go. <laughs> you would have been a great customer. <laughs> I just sang on a podcast for the first time, but <laughs> um, and that that worked great. Yeah, you know, these were selling for like ninety to hundred dollars each, um, and I was you know, twelve or thirteen years old, um, and uh, everything was great until I came home from soccer practice one day, and my mom had this really stern look on her face and asked me to sit down at the dinner table, and she had a. Uh, kind of a stack of papers and it was a cease and desist letter from uh, the Warner Brothers <laughs> legal department uh, basically saying I was violating their um, their IP and uh, so yeah maybe that was kind of my my first entrepreneurial journey but um, yeah I was kind of always thinking about um, you know what are um, you know, creative ways not necessarily to make money but it was just kind of just yeah you know, things that were it felt interesting to me. So I know you were at Bain for a few years and then you sort of went on to do a couple other things. Um, I think still in the consulting space, maybe I, I'm not too certain. So I, I guess like kind of walk us through what happened after you left Bain and first of all, why you left it, like what was the opportunity you found and where did you see your life going at that time? Yeah. So um, I was at Bain for three years, had an awesome experience there. And, but I also, um, you know, kind of never took that job with the intention of staying there forever, with the intention of becoming a consultant. And, um, you know, after being there for three years, felt like I'd learned a lot and was ready to kind of explore something else and really wanted to do something uh, to combine uh, some of those business skills that I just learned uh, with my passion around healthcare or science and to start exploring um, a few opportunities. And I came across a couple um uh, interesting job offers that were so different that I had a hard time comparing them. So uh, the first was um, working, would have taken me uh, to Uganda, uh, to Kampala, where I would have been the country director for the Clinton Foundation Pediatric HIV and AIDS Initiative. And it was a two-year commitment. Um, I'd never been to Uganda or anywhere close, but um, I thought it was, you know, sounded like a really interesting opportunity and and a really meaningful uh, opportunity to to help a lot of people. Um, the other was to move to New York and work for um, a uh, investment bank called Allen and Company. Um, it's a merchant bank, so they uh, do both investment uh, banking kind of advisory work, but they also invest in companies like a venture capital firm would. Um, have a 
have been around for uh, for quite some time, had a, a really great reputation uh, within the world of internet, um, media, uh, entertainment. Um, but they just hired a couple people to launch their uh, uh, healthcare group. And I would have been kind of the, the first associate um, as part of that effort. And I thought that kind of also sounded like a really interesting opportunity to be able to do something entrepreneurial, um, apply kind of combine business and, and healthcare um, within uh, this broader platform. And uh, the opportunities were, were just so different that I had a hard time, um, you know, really thinking about uh, you know, nonprofit in Africa versus uh, a bank in New York um, ended up going with uh, the Allen and Company uh, offer in New York. Uh, one of my really close friends from Bain, who I was working with, um, ended up taking the uh, the job with the the Clinton Foundation, and so um, we kind of were on parallel paths for for two years, and we stayed in in, in close touch. After that two year period, we both ended up um, going to to business school, and uh, then both ended up in startups, and so. Um, you know, unclear, uh, you know, how that would have, um, you know, kind of impacted my life in, in, in a different way. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, ended up uh, on the path, uh, taking, taking me to New York and, um, and learned a lot uh, and had a great experience there as well. Uh, but similarly, um, you know, realized I, I didn't want to be a banker forever. And, uh, I was working with a lot of entrepreneurs that seemed like they were having, um, a lot more fun, uh, than I was. Um, and that's when um, yeah, I, I thought that it would make sense to go back to school um, to have the opportunity to kind of bring all these uh, kind of different parts of my life together and, and kind of all these previous experiences from college, from Bain, from Allen and Company, um, and meld them into something that I was you know, truly passionate about. So Dave, talk to us about Wharton, right? You know, the number one business school in the country. You go, you're, you're, you're getting your MBA uh, combining all of the things that you've been working on, what was the vision beyond business school? Um, and then what was your experience like? Obviously, it was one of those places that you met uh, who eventually became your um, co-founders in Warby Parker. So I, I assume it was a very good experience at one point, at least. Uh, but talk to us about that and, uh, you know, curious to learn more. Yeah, I had an amazing experience at Warden. Have only good things to say uh, about my time there, and got you know lucky uh, in any number of ways. But you know, my my intention going uh, into school um, was yeah to combine business and science somehow, do something entrepreneurial. Um, I didn't have at the time. I didn't have an idea that I was super passionate about. That um, you know, sure I wanted to explore, uh, but I thought that. Um, being on a great university like um, at, at Penn, um, I'd probably be able to meet some really interesting people who are working on things where I could apply um, some aspect of um, what what I knew uh, to help commercialize and, and create um, a, a business that helped a lot of people and helped make the world better. And initially, I thought that would be um, kind of science-based, so really coming out of a lab on, on campus. And um, I actually uh, applied to a dual degree program. I was enrolled uh, to get my MBA at Wharton and also uh, to get my master's of biotechnology through uh, the engineering school. And I was going to uh, do both of those uh, in two years and really load up my calendar. Um, and then I also started working for the Center for Technology Transfer 
um, on campus, which is an organization that um, really uh, takes intellectual property that's developed um, on campus and um, is the commercialization hub um, to try to kind of monetize some of the scientific discoveries, whether that's creating companies or selling royalties um, or finding uh, kind of business development opportunities for some of those discoveries. And um, I thought, you know, maybe through that work, I'd be able to meet you know, some interesting scientists who had developed some uh, kind of novel technology that I could help commercialize and form a company around. So that was kind of my uh, intended path. And um, before I could really start in that process, um, you know, I had a happy accident where, um, uh, you know, I've always been really passionate about travel and uh, kind of exploration. And I think that probably comes back to, uh, you know, growing up in uh, in between Sweden and, and San Diego, and my parents um, love to travel, and I love being exposed to, to other cultures. And so I uh, thought it was a pretty unique um, opportunity uh, going to school to take a few months off and uh, travel around the world. And so um, six months before I was starting at Wharton, um, I had my uh, I quit at, at Allen and Company. Um, I turned in my company issued BlackBerry. And I traveled for six months, uh, backpacked around the world, starting in South America, and then went over to Asia um, and did that without a phone. And um, along the way, I lost my uh, only pair of glasses. I left them on a plane and I came back to the U.S. as a full-time student and I needed to buy two things. One was uh, a new pair of glasses and, and one was a phone. Uh, the iPhone 3G had just come out. And I, I waited in line at the Apple store, uh, bought uh, an iPhone, my first iPhone for $200. And it was this, this magical device, especially coming from having traveled uh, for, for several months without um, any phone. Uh, and before that, having a BlackBerry. Uh, and then I realized that I was going to have to pay $700 for a new pair of glasses. And that just, uh, the, the math just didn't compute to me. Um, where the iPhone was this magical device using um, uh, all the latest uh, technology that had just been developed over the last few years. And meanwhile, the technology in a pair of glasses is 800 years old um, and there's nothing in the cost of goods that you know, justifies these high prices. And so I started complaining to anyone that would listen um, around campus about, uh, you know, couldn't understand why glasses were so expensive. Um, and uh, coincidentally, um, Andy Hunt, who was on my, who's uh, uh, one of my co-founders on on our board, um, he was on my learning team. So um, Wharton's class is 800 plus people. Um, they divide you into groups of six, and you take all your first year classes uh, with those same six people and do uh, all your group projects together. Uh, Andy uh, was one of my classmates and um, and was on my learning team, and uh, he had independently been thinking about um, why no one was selling glasses online. So this was in 2008, before Amazon had kind of taken over the world of e-commerce. Um, but um, at the time, you had uh, a bunch of um, e-commerce companies that were selling uh, products that, you know, until um, uh, until that like time, like crackers and like those those places. Like, is that where you would go to get glasses? Or um, yeah, so you know, I would. 
go to, there was a you know, place uh, by campus called Four Eyes and you know, Lens Crafters and Pearl Vision. Those were really kind of the you know, main options that um, were, you know, Cohen's Fashion Optical in New York. Um, uh, but no one was really selling glasses online at the time in 2008, but people were selling a bunch, starting to sell a bunch of other products. So you had Zappos selling shoes and, and kind of building out a model uh, uh, to make you know, a product that you had to try on um, viable over the internet. Blue Nile was selling engagement rings. You had 1-800-CONTACTS selling contact lenses. You had diapers.com selling you know, diapers and household items. Um, uh, but no one was really selling glasses um, online, or at least less than 1% of, of glasses were sold online at the time. And so as we started talking about, you know, I was complaining that glasses were too expensive, and he was complaining that no one was selling them online. Uh, we started looking into it and realized it's a massive industry, well over $100 billion globally, um, that basically had, had no innovation on the product side or distribution side. And that didn't make sense to us. And so we started kind of talking about it more. Um, and a couple of my other uh, classmates, uh, Jeff Rader and Neil Blumenthal, um, you know, we, we were just kind of friends and uh, we started uh, you know, roping in, them into the conversation and, um, and all of a sudden realized that we were kind of super passionate uh, about this. We, there was just kind of something that didn't make sense and we were all frustrated consumers. Jeff had, he was wearing a pair of glasses at the time that were five years old. His prescription had changed twice, uh, but he didn't want to pay several hundred dollars uh, for a new pair of glasses. Um, Andy had lost his glasses so many times that he ended up getting LASIK because he was just a frustrated consumer. And then Neil had spent a few years um, uh, running uh, this great nonprofit called Vision Spring, where they were addressing the billion plus people around the globe that don't have access to glasses and need them. And um, and was setting up programs in places like rural Bangladesh and Honduras and, and other places um, to train locals in those areas and, and villages, rural villages to um, administer vision tests and um, uh, actually sell subsidized glasses into those communities. And so uh, part of his uh, journey there um, was manufacturing kind of uh, glasses for that nonprofit. And um, he had spent time in factories where they were making glasses for people living on less than $4 a day on the same production lines as some of these glasses that I was about to pay several hundred dollars for. And so um, we all got You, you mentioned how expensive, sorry, good job. You know, you know, uh, you mentioned how expensive, um, you know, glasses were, was that because it was just like a massive monopolistic industry or like, why hadn't anyone else introduced a cheaper alternative that was also decent quality? Yeah, so that was kind of the main question on our mind. It just didn't make sense to us. And um, as we started kind of um, exploring and learning more about the industry, we kept coming back to um, one answer. And uh, as you just laid out, that there was this massive concentration of power in the industry. And so um, if you ask most consumers um, you know, to name brands uh, or that they associate with eyewear, They'll probably name a bunch of eyewear only brands like Ray-Ban, Oakley, Oliver Peoples, Persol, Arnett. Uh, they might name uh, the you know, brand that's on there, the last pair of sunglasses that they bought, Chanel, Prada, Dolce Gabbana, Ralph Lauren, Versace. They might name uh, some of the optical retailers where they bought those glasses, LensCrafters, Pearl Vision, Sunglass Hut, Macy's Optical, Target Optical. Um, uh, or they might name their vision insurance that they used to 
uh, buy those glasses like iMed. Um, what most consumers don't realize, and I didn't realize uh, until then, was that all those uh, brands are owned or controlled by the same company. Um, so exactly. there's a company called Luxottica um, that is uh, uh, in order of magnitude larger than any other company in the industry. And they've really grown through acquisition and uh, they control kind of large parts of uh, the supply chain and, and, and value chain. And uh, they've done a great job of creating this illusion of choice for consumers where you walk into a LensCrafters or a Sunglass Hut um, and you see 50 different brands of glasses. Um, you don't realize that all those brands are owned by the same company that owns the store that you're standing in, that owns the vision insurance plan you're using to pay for those glasses. And as a result, most glasses in the US are marked up 10 to 20 times what they cost to manufacture. And uh, actually the price of glasses has gone up um, as opposed to most other consumer products categories um, that where technology has been an enabler of deflationary prices um, in the optical industry, it's the opposite. And so, um, you know, until that time, until the internet uh, enabled um, brands to connect directly with consumers, you had to go through uh, kind of the distribution channels of, of a company like Luxottica. So, you know, if we had thought about launching a brand uh, not in, in 2010 when we launched, but in 2000 or 2002, to get any sort of distribution, we would have had to sell through LensCrafters, Pearl Vision, Sunglass Hut, all retailers that are owned by Luxottica. Um, and if we had wanted to be an uh, eyewear retailer, we would have to carry their brands. Um, the, you know, the power of the internet is that we could disintermediate all these middlemen, including uh, these really large companies, and we could create our own brand, design the glasses that we would want to wear using the highest quality materials, best production lines in the world, and then sell them directly to consumers, bypassing the middlemen, bypassing these wholesale markups and putting those savings in the pockets of our consumers. And so um, that was really um, kind of the aha moment that we could sell a pair of glasses that normally would cost several hundred dollars, but we could sell them direct to consumers for $95, including prescription lenses. Um, and uh, uh, and so that was kind of the in, you know, initial genesis for um, what turned into Warby Parker. And Dave, just a quick question. So you guys here are four students at Wharton studying and trying to earn your MBA. Uh, you have this idea uh, you find that perhaps there's a big opportunity here. You know, it's hard enough to start a business. I imagine it's harder to have four people that are co-founding this business, uh, you know, together. And sure, you know, it's good to have a team. But how did you guys decide to uh, divide up the roles? Who was going to do what? I mean, you guys are four people, you know, have nothing yet to go for you guys besides, you know, your experience, this opportunity. What, what were you guys doing early on? How did you guys say, okay, Dave's doing this, Neil's doing that, he's doing that, he's doing that, we need this. Talk to us about those early days and what that looked like and how you guys divvied up those tasks. Sure. Uh, yeah, so you know, we, um, throughout the process, we tried to get as smart as possible. None of us had uh, ever launched a business before. None of us had ever built a website before. None of us had ever uh, kind of gone through the uh, design process for a pair of glasses before, um, and we sought out a lot of advice from um, you know people who had done kind of various aspects uh, uh, of this kind of company formation and, and brand building. And universally, we got feedback that uh, said, "Don't start a company with four founders, and and definitely don't start a company uh, with four friends. You guys are going to end up 
hating each other, suing each other. There's going to be conflicts. Uh, uh, one person's not going to uh, want to do this anymore. One person's going to coast and try to get credit, and you're going to get frustrated. And um, and and we kind of all valid that. point, by the way. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. that you do see that often. I still would encourage people to not. <laughs> Start people company with four people, but then again, you know, I would say Warby's. It might be the anomaly here, right? But it, I think, be cautious in who you choose as your co-founders is the better advice. Absolutely, I think we're an exception that proves the rule, and and in um, almost every case, there are um, you know a lot more complications, um, and and we certainly had our own fair share of complications, uh, but we uh, went in eyes wide open and. Our commitment to each other was that we were going to treat each other honestly and fairly, um, and our friendship was more important than the success of the business. And and uh, recognizing that we were going to have some challenging conversations, that our uh, all of our interests were not always going to be aligned, but um, we committed uh, to being fair to one another um, early on. And we even set up our um, founder equity structure reflective of that. So. Uh, we started talking about the idea for this business in our first semester. We in, um, and we realized that you know even in business school, like this is an exciting idea. Um, we're all uh, in this right now, but who knows? One of us might get a job offer to go to McKinsey or Goldman or do something else, yeah. or one of us you know might be interested in leading this club or uh, might have another business idea that they come on that they like even more. And, um, is, and at that, and point, I think it's like conflict. Yeah. Like another thing is like conflict, you know, it's almost inevitable. Like it's going to come up at some point in a business, like where not everyone agrees and four people is an even number. So like, you know, if you want to take a vote, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for it to just be split, you know, two, two. And does that happen often? Or are you guys mostly on the same page when it comes to strategy and just things like that? Yeah. So we, we tried to kind of plan for that ahead of time. We realized that these situations become sticky when you're in the moment and something hasn't been decided before the, a conflict arises. And so uh, even between the four of us, we set up our founder equity to vest um, from when we started talking about the business until we graduated from school um, as kind of the first period. And then we would have a resetting uh, of equity. And that meant that if someone um, left the business along the way, they would get credit for time served. Um, and we wouldn't have to kind of negotiate as someone was exiting the business that um, we agreed on something that we thought was fair to everyone up front. Um, same thing with, yeah, kind of conflict resolution, realized that um, an even number isn't great. Um, so we actually built, built into our bylaws that one of our professors who uh, we were close with could serve as the fifth vote um, if it was needed. And again, wanted to build that in ahead of time before you know, there was an actual vote or conflict that, um, you know, one side might think that, you know, this professor might be biased in, in one way or another. Uh, fortunately, we never Does had to still have that uh, power? Kind of exercise that. Uh, no, uh, that was just while we we're in school. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly had, um, you know, a bunch of, you know, challenging moments and, and times when we didn't uh, agree on everything. Um, but, um, you know, we kept, we, stayed true to our word that um, we were going to be, you know, treat each other fairly and honestly and, and be direct. And, um, and that has resulted in all four of us um, remaining best friends. And so uh, Jeff and Andy left day-to-day -day roles when we graduated. Um, so a few months out, we launched the business in February, 2010. We graduated in May. At that point, Jeff and Andy left day-to-day -day roles. 
They're still on the board to this day, 10 years later, uh, but haven't had an operating role since then. Um, we're still best friends. We still vacation together. Um, uh, and uh, I think that's just kind of a testament to um, that commitment that we had to you know, treating one another uh, fairly and um, and kind of getting through those moments of tension where uh, you know, there certainly have been uh, many of those over the years. You know, the thing that I love about entrepreneurship is like you can be, I mean, you can be someone who's like 17, 18 years old, you know, has, has, hasn't even gone to college yet, no experience. And you just come across something that, you know, just kind of tickles your fancy and you go into it and you just kind of build, you know, kind of from a standpoint of maybe like ignorance or just like not knowing, like na- naivety, you know, and then yeah, that could be successful. And then there's someone who could be like, you know, 40, 50 years old, has had this crazy experienced life and has multiple job you know, experiences and they have all this knowledge that they can apply to whatever they're trying to start and they could also be successful or, or the opposite in your case, you know, you, so you went to business school with the notion of, I want to become an entrepreneur. I want to learn entrepreneurship. Would you recommend that to people that perhaps are in that age range of like 27, 28, few years out of undergrad has, has some work experience, but wants to be an entrepreneur, doesn't really know what they want to do like do you think that going to business school is a good route or was that just something that worked for you yeah absolutely you know i think i got particularly lucky um that kind of i you know had this moment of frustration as did andy right around the same time and that uh you know some some great like-minded um uh, future co-founders, and we were able to, uh, you know, uh, rely on our classmates and professors, and to really kind of build out um, our business model and, and help us launch the business in a successful way. Uh, but it, you know, I think in general, uh, business school is a great opportunity to um, explore different paths um, uh, to get exposure to um, things that you normally wouldn't if you have kind of one job that's occupying all your time. Um, it's a way where you can really fragment your schedule and, and um, you know, sort of choose your own adventure on where you want to lean in and, and what you want to ignore. And so you can choose to ignore some of your classes and um, spend that time um, you know, starting a business like uh, uh, some of us did, or uh, you can you know, choose to really lean into kind of the academic aspect, um, social. Uh, but I think you know more than anything, going to a, a top business school, a place like Wharton, you're going to come across such interesting, bright, motivated uh, people um, that are going to inspire you and can spark ideation and creativity. And um, and I think that's um, certainly where we saw the most benefit, not only amongst the, uh, the group of us four founders, but uh, from kind of our extended network of other individuals that have been super helpful and, and, and thought-provoking, um, you know, both for uh, our, our business, but um, in, in really other aspects of life as well. So Dave, I know that the launch or the public launch, let's call it, of Warby Parker uh, had an interesting story. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, things have turned out pretty damn good for Warby Parker. Um, but talk to us a little bit about that. Give the, for folks that haven't particularly heard that story, give us a brief overview of, you know, how the Warby Parker launch went like, and tell us why, why was even called Warby Parker? Sure. Um, yeah. So we spent, we started talking about this idea, the four of us in, 
November of 2008, our first semester at school, we ended up launching the business about 18 months later um, in our last semester of school. And we spent that period uh, really developing every aspect of the brand and the business and, um, and you know, flying uh, over to Asia, meeting with factory owners, um, trying to figure out how to you know, design glasses in an iterative process, um, flesh out um, all the aspects of the brand, figure out how to build a website, um, all things that, uh, again, none of us had, had done before. Um, and do that while we were in school, while we were kind of uh, had internships at, at other places as well. Uh, and, you know, one thing um, that I had seen in my uh, kind of uh prior days on the investing side was that um, sometimes investors and founders or management teams um, are not always aligned. And um, that's where kind of ownership and um, you know, rights that are built into uh, kind of certain company documents really come into play. And I think that um, set in uh, some form of paranoia that uh, we uh, we didn't want investors being able to kind of control the, the outcome of this business, especially um, early on. And we were also terrified of losing other people's money, um, kind of uh, losing our friends and, and family money. And so um, we said, you know, all four of us have worked for a few years before coming into school. We have some savings. Um, and uh, the, between the four of us, we each committed $30,000, so $120,000 in total uh, to launch this business. Uh, we weren't paying ourselves a salary. We didn't have any employees, didn't have any, didn't have a marketing budget, uh, but really spent that money on three things. One uh, was to build a website uh, where we knew we had to hire uh, kind of a, a firm or, or a team uh, to, to build that for us. This was uh, well before Shopify and uh, and other tools existed that uh, kind of make that um, that process much easier today. Um, we had to pay for our initial set of inventory. Uh, we had horrible terms with our uh, supplier as a brand new business um, uh, where we had to pay um, for 100% of the inventory before they would ship it. Uh, and then um, we spent some money hiring a, a fashion publicist. Uh, we realized that uh, we were trying to create a fashion brand and um, glasses are a unique product that have both form and function. You have to be able to see well, but it's also one of the only things that people wear on their face and uh, has to make you look good and, and feel good. And uh, we recognize that um, four MBAs from Wharton um, without kind of a formal design background um, probably isn't the sexiest combo um, to get the fashion world excited. And so I really wanted uh, kind of credibility from a design and, and fashion perspective. And I assume, yeah. um, David, I assume like at the time, I don't know if you like these factories had just kind of brandless glasses that you could have done like a, some sort of private label thing and just get started on. Like, did you, you wanted from the beginning, you guys sat down and talked about it. Like, we're going to design these from scratch. We're going to build them from scratch. It's going to be our own unique product. And that's the only way this is going to work. Yeah. We had a very specific point of view that, um, you know, we, we wanted to build a brand. Uh, we think brands have an ability to connect emotionally uh, with their customers. Brand ha brands have the opportunity uh, to have more impact on a global scale than kind of a, uh, just a retailer or um, a uh, someone that yeah kind of repackages you know existing designs. And um, we also were kind of designing the glasses that we would want to wear, that we'd want our friends to wear. We had a point of view on design. Um, we just hadn't 
um, you know, we had to uh, figure out how to translate uh, that vision into physical products and, and um, enable that vision uh, to turn into classes that, um, you know, could be, um, that also um, serve their function and could be uh, worn easily and that wouldn't create lens issues and things like that. Um, and so there was, you know, a crash course in, in kind of that classes design process. Um, um, and on the technology, this, the same thing, uh, none of us knew how to code. Uh, what we did know how to do was make PowerPoint slides. And so uh, we actually designed our entire website in PowerPoint um, and printed out stacks of paper. And we would go to uh, the local Starbucks and other coffee shops around Penn's campus. And we'd see people waiting in line and offer to buy uh, their latte for them. Um, if they would take a few minutes and help us do a little testing and most people agreed and um, we would put uh, a, a page in front of them and say, imagine uh, printed out page and say, imagine this is our homepage on a website. Um, where would you click and you know, use your hand uh, to indicate where you would click. They would point somewhere um, and then we would shuffle through our papers, find the next page uh, that um, was kind of the, uh, wherever they, they pointed, put that in front of them. And, um, and that was really kind of our first user testing and UX and wireframe testing. Um, and in parallel, we, um, we did an RFP um, with a few firms that we had uh, gotten referrals to um, that could help us build our website. And being bootstrapped founders, full-time students, not paying ourselves a salary, we were very cost conscious. Um, super scrappy. And so um, we got uh, um, all the pricing back and uh, basically all the firms were very close to one another within 5%, um, except there was one that was half, um, was 50% lower than the other ones. We said, great, uh, let's let's go with the cheapest one. Um, and a few months into the process, realized that uh, you often get what you pay for. And um, this firm really was incompetent and uh, they were not getting anywhere close to um, our requirements. They were not getting anywhere close to uh, creating something that was actually going to be functional. And so we ended up firing them. We found one guy on Odesk um, who ended up building um, our site. And uh, you know, in parallel, we were working with our fashion publicists to try to get placements in uh, uh, you know, the premier publications, GQ and Vogue. Um, he was able to secure um, these placements and uh, said that we were going to be featured in the March issue, March of 2010. They said, awesome. Uh, we should be able to, we should be ready for launch then. And then we got a call on February 14th from our publicist said, Hey guys, what are you doing? I just went to your website. It says coming soon. Um, GQ is hitting newsstands tomorrow and you guys are in it. And we said, well, well, we don't understand. You said we're in the March issue. And he's like, Come on, guys, uh, you should know this, but March issues hit newsstands in mid-Feb. Um, and so, yeah, we had no idea how, uh, how that worked. And, and so we ended up um, kind of frantically working uh, with our developer, Brett, um, until four in the morning, trying to uh, work out as many bugs on the site as possible. Still had a, a lot of things that was wrong with it, but we flipped it live um, uh, because it really wasn't where we wanted it to be. Didn't tell any of our friends or family members. My mom didn't know the site was live and taking orders. Uh, but then I was sitting in class a few hours later and I had my phone set up to be notified uh, anytime an order would come in. 
and uh, it buzzed and I got super excited, opened up my laptop. We weren't, we weren't supposed to use computers in class, but I emailed the, the other guys, uh, the other founder said, hey guys, we got our first order. Um, and then 10 minutes later, we got another order and then another order and then another order and then another order. And by the end of our um, that hour and a half class, realized that we had taken more orders than we had inventory for. And uh, we didn't have any waitlist functionality or sold out functionality. That was never in our roadmap. We never thought that would be um, something we would ever have to uh, deal with. And so we kind of called an emergency meeting and um, we were debating, do we take down the website? Uh, do we just keep taking orders and apologize to customers later? Um, and kind of as we were having this conversation, getting another hundred orders um, and uh, we ended up uh, calling our developer. He was able to build in some waitlist functionality pretty quickly, and all of a sudden, um, we you know we could say that we were sold out of certain SKUs, and we had a waitlist of twenty thousand customers, and it was just kind of off to the races. Um, and you know, we that had really tempered our day? expectations talking to. Um, that was over the course of the first week. So in the first week. 20,000 plus waiting customers. That, that's right. And, you know, part wow. of our, um, you know, part of our, uh, I guess, innovation when we launched the business to uh, make the experience uh, delightful for customers to be able to order glasses online was we developed the first of its kind home try-on where customers could select any five frames from our website. We'd send them without prescription lenses for free, include a free return shipping label. Um, really the first company to do that. Um, and you know, within the first day, we were completely sold out of all our home try-on inventory. Um, and it took us nine months to be able to turn that program back on. And we felt terrible. Wow. Um, we were, you know, it was a good problem to have, but um, we were mortified that these were our early adopters that were giving us a chance and we were disappointing them. Um, and so, uh, you know, we personally reached out to kind of everyone on that list offered people, even though we had no money offered people a lot of free glasses or discounts and, um, really tried to ensure that everyone walked away with a positive first experience with the brand. So just to follow up, wh why was it called Warby Parker? Oh, uh, yeah, forgot to <laughs> discuss. You know, out of all the things that we had to do to launch the business, um, we joke, uh, although probably serious, that the hardest thing uh, we had to do was come up with a name that all four of us liked. And um, at the time, there were some sites selling um, glasses online, but they had names like $39glasses.com, gogglesforyou.com, and um, other names that... Um, uh, we didn't think were appropriate for a fashion brand. And um, we, over a six-month period, we explored over 2,000 names. I think we still have our spreadsheet somewhere. And um, we bugged uh, the hell out of our friends and family members. Anytime we had a conversation with anyone, we'd um, ask them what they thought about, you know, five to 10 name ideas. And, uh, you know, we tested everything from, you know, uh, Greek myth mythological creatures to, um, you know, different names, uh, you know, Chinese water dolphins and, um, um, and ultimately we settled on, um, you know, wanting a proper name to connote the fact that we were launching a fashion brand. Uh, we didn't want to name it after ourselves, um, for a couple of reasons. One being that we didn't think Gilboa Blumenthal really rolled off the tongue. Um, but, um, we, uh, 
spent a lot of time talking about um, authors or artists that uh, we felt represented our brand ideals um, and spent a lot of time talking about the beat generation writers um, in, in the U.S. and how they defied convention. And coincidentally, the New York Public Library had an exhibit on Jack Kerouac's uh, private journals. Um, and so I uh, went uh, to, to that exhibit and um, he had written about these um, characters with really interesting names that never made it into any of his published works. And uh, there were two names that uh, really caught my eye. One was Warby Pepper and the other was Zag Parker and took those back to the other co-founders. Uh, they loved those as well. And then uh, we started discussing, do we you know, take one of these um, um, or do we combine them and, and make it our own? And, and I went with the latter path of Warby Parker um, tested that um, with uh, friends and consumers and found uh, you know, generally a really positive reaction. And the URL was available for nine bucks, uh, which was super helpful <laughs> when we were bootstrapping the business. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, obviously launching online and, and sort of the growth there. And then at some point, you know, you obviously launch your own retail stores and you, you guys have a really cool, you know, retail experience um, from what I've seen and just other people I've heard. So kind of how did that all come about? And when was that first launched? Yeah, so right after we launched, um, we had this massive wait list and uh, we started getting calls to our customer service line, which was really just a Google voice number that called all four founders cell phones uh, at the same time. And uh, customers started calling in and saying, hey, I really, I read about you in GQ or Vogue. I really want to try on the glasses, but there's this massive waiting list. Can I come to your store or office? And uh, we said, well, the store in office is my apartment, but come on over. We were based in Philly at the time. I think had the second highest murder rate in the country, uh, but started inviting just straight, you know, any stranger that wanted to uh, just sent them our address and laid out the glasses on dining room table. And at least we initially, we were um, a bit worried that we were going to give people a suboptimal first experience uh, with the brand, but we found that people loved that experience. They loved being able to try on the entire collection. They loved getting to meet people behind the brand. And we learned so much from those face-to-face -face interactions around um, which frames people gravitated to initially to try on relative to the ones that you know they ended up actually purchasing, um, getting feedback around fit and style and colors. Um, was just super helpful in those early days. And so we joked that that was really kind of our first office and our first retail store. Uh, then when we graduated a few months later, we moved to New York and our office was on the sixth floor of a commercial building. Uh, but we dedicated a couple hundred square feet to um, a customer showroom, which was really a couple tables with glasses on them. Um, we had three Mac computers up to um, the homepage of our website. And um, we enabled people to come try on glasses there. The checkout was, you know, I had to go through the full e-commerce checkout. We didn't have any cash register or any kind of streamlined experience. All of a sudden we had hundreds of customers a day um, coming up to the sixth floor, even though we again had no signage and, um, and we were doing millions of dollars in sales out of that location. And so then after that, we tested up some pop-up shops and store and stores, and those were successful. We bought an old yellow school bus that we gutted and turned the back of it into a store, had a few members of our customer uh, experience team just driving around the country, setting up pop-up shops um, uh, in a bunch of different cities and found that was really successful and led to a sustained lift in customer awareness and sales in those markets even after the bus left. Um, and so that gave us the confidence that, um, hey, 
uh, we're huge believers in e-commerce and that's going to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, the majority of our business for a long time, but, um, we can complement that by having a great retail experience and we can make that profitable. And, and speaking of e-commerce and like, you know, obviously Shopify launches and the internet is booming and, uh, you know, a lot of brands are entering online and, um, I'm sure since then, you know, there've been a lot of other glass, you know, manufacturers like, you know, that have launched online. Um, but you know, I, I think I saw that you had done like a few hundred dollars of few hundred million dollars of revenue, you know, in the last couple of years, I'm sure you're like growing every year, but, um, why do you think, you know, Warby Parker has been kind of the leader in this space of kind of this like new wave of glasses manufacturers and, um, you know, as opposed to kind of the old school ones. Um, and like, is it like a first mover advantage thing or are there other, are there other reasons that you can think of besides obviously having a great product? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, really stems from having a, uh, relentless focus on delivering exceptional products and experiences to, to customers, whether those are online or, or offline, being really clear in our brand values and, and company ideals and, um, and enabling um, ourselves to attract and retain really passionate employees who want to work for uh, um, a brand that is um, that's a, a for-profit business, uh, but uh, that um, has this really important social mission and um, kind of, uh, clearly wants to make the world better. And uh, and I think that's enabled us to have uh, a culture of innovation. So um, we weren't the first company to sell glasses online, uh, but we were the first ones to um, really build a really big scalable business around it. Um, and we've certainly had a lot of copycats, have had hundreds of companies um, uh, launch both in the US and abroad. And um, a lot of those are out of business. Uh, others just haven't scaled. Um, uh, because they were always looking at um, kind of what we've done in the past while we've focused on on the future and delivering additional value and, and new products and experiences, whether that um, is going from online and bucking convention and starting to open stores and now having over 125 stores or uh, investing in telemedicine and making it easier for people to get uh, prescriptions online or having the first of its kind, uh, true to scale virtual try on. Um, using Apple's True Depth camera and things that um, you know these other brands and companies just uh, kind of are never going to be able to catch up because we're always uh, you know developing things that haven't been released uh, to to our customers yet. Dave, I'm a personal fan and customer of Warby Parker. I mean, I've been wearing glasses since I was fifth grade, uh, and you know you go to the optometrist, you know they try to upsell you on some lenses they have there, uh, and you know goes on the story goes on and on but obviously my experience with Rory parker uh for my sunglasses the first time around were, was amazing i sent in my prescription got prescription sunglasses amazing customer service uh and i realized you know early on that this was going to just be something that continued to grow and obviously you guys have become a few billion dollar you know worth company and continuing to grow there you know where do you see the future of warby parker um and where do you see your future, right? This is called the Founder Hour, so we're a lot more focused on the founder and their journey. Where's Dave going to be in the next 5, 10, 20 years? Do you plan on sticking around, or are you going to go launch the next big thing? Yeah, so um, we've always had a really long-term focus with Warby Parker. 
um, you know, from day one, uh, you know, people laughed at us uh, a bit because um, we didn't have the kind of credibility at the time. But uh, we always said that we want Warby Parker to be one of the most impactful brands in the world 100 years from now. And uh, with that in mind, we're 10 years into this journey, but we still feel like we're building the foundation for the brand and the business. And we have so much work to do uh, to continue to, uh, to positively impact our industry, to uh, positively impact tens and hundreds of, of millions uh, of people's lives. Um, and you know, for us, we, uh, one of our core values is do good. Um, and we think about that, um, you know, starting with our customers by offering them great products and experiences. But um, you know, something that um, we wanted to uh, really build into the fabric of the company and the DNA of the company from day one uh, was this social mission, because uh, we realized that, you know, launching a business uh, is exciting, um, but you can easily kind of get bored after that um, if there um, it, you know, it is nothing um, that really plays to your passions of, of kind of scaling that business or scaling that opportunity. And for us, um, as founders, we were all really passionate about wanting to create something that made the world better. And that goes back to, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, my, my family of, of um, medical professionals and, and uh, having that ethos ingrained in me from, uh, from the early days and uh, Neil working for nonprofits, Jeff and Andy really being passionate about um, uh, this, this as well. And uh, we wanted to create a business model where uh, by its nature, the bigger the company got, the more impact it would have and, and the more help, more people it would help. And so um, that's really where we came up with the concept for our buy a pair, give a pair program, uh, where for every pair of glasses, we work with uh, nonprofits like Vision Spring to distribute a pair of glasses to, to someone in need. And uh, we've now distributed over 7 million pairs of glasses. Um, there are over a billion people around the globe that need glasses that don't have access to them. And so we still have a lot of work to do, um, and that's something that's really motivating to to me and uh, and our team to understand kind of the impact that um, that we yeah. can have um, as we continue to scale. What do you think is the future of glasses? Like, is because obviously with like technology and like you know becoming more and more um, maybe like cost efficient to do surgery if you need prescription sunglasses or if your like vision is impaired. Like, do you think that like do you just see it becoming? different but still needed or like i know it's like also a fashion thing and then you have sunglasses as well what just what are your general thoughts because uh, obviously none of us know but what are your general thoughts in that area yeah it's interesting um you, you know i think people have predicted the the downfall of glasses for a long time whether it was contact lenses uh which we now offer um, our own version of contacts which i'm wearing now the scout um, um or lasik um uh, but uh, glasses are as popular uh, as, as ever, and we expect that to continue. And if anything, um, you know, it's interesting to us that um, uh, there is kind of a um, collision path between um, technology um, that goes into your phone and, and cameras and, uh, uh, and battery power, is, is all that um, miniaturizes. Uh, there's the ability to integrate. Um, additional sensors and uh, uh, and computing power into the form factor of something that looks like a pair of glasses, and um, you know clearly um, this is something that is uh, getting a lot of R and D and and 
um, you know, investment from companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, and uh, Magic Leap, and, and and others, and billions of dollars going into to research. And um, so, you know, we're excited that uh, the the form factor of a pair of glasses is becoming more interesting over time, and and we think we have a role to play um, in bringing that future to life. And and um, uh, so, I think you know, over time, there's going to be more diversity in, in uh, the types of glasses that people wear from um, you know, kind of traditional glasses that have prescriptions in them, them and um, glasses. Um, right now, a, a lot of our customers are buying glasses. Uh, people that don't need um, uh, prescription help um, are buying glasses with blue light blocking lenses uh, because they're mm-hmm. spending a lot of time staring at computer screens or concerned about um, uh, the impact of, of blue light on, um, on sleep. And uh, then over time, think that there will be uh, a bunch of different iterations of smart glasses where there are technologies of, of different types that are built into to glasses. And so um, we think the future of glasses is, is more exciting than, than it's ever been. And, and correct me if I'm wrong or correct me if you know this is already something that's existing, but can Warby Parker essentially go in and become the future optometrists of the world? And you know, license your name, your products, et cetera, to both current and future optometrists uh, to not only provide the testing and all that kind of stuff, but also the products after. You know, is that something that you guys are already doing? Something you guys have thought of? Something that is absolutely not going to happen? Um, it's something that I've just been thinking about recently. Yeah, so uh, we do uh, employ and work with over a hundred optometrists and ophthalmologists today. So. Um, we have over 125 stores um, and are still big believers in, in physical retail uh, and in um, every location where it's possible, um, we have an eye doctor um, on site where you can go get uh, an eye exam uh, for, for glasses and contacts and, and uh, check your overall eye health. Uh, then we also have um, a telemedicine app called Prescription Check that you can download and um, if it's um, uh, allowed in your state, you can do a vision test from home. We have an ophthalmologist who's licensed in your state um, who can write you a prescription remotely. And uh, we think we're at kind of uh, uh, in the top of the first inning in terms of the potential for, for telemedicine. And we're really eager to lean in um, uh, to provide more vision services uh, to, to patients and customers over time. Um, in terms of um, you know creating a platform to license and enable others uh, to use, um, Right now, um, we find that we're able to um, offer the best experiences to our customers and create the most value when we kind of control the end-to-end experience. And so um, that, uh, that's the, the current path we're on. But um, over a very long time frame, uh, we're certainly open to uh, kind of other iterations of, of our, our business model. Nice. Yeah, it's going to be. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with like everything, like you said, with technology and um, science kind of merging and converging in this area. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of these different brands. Like, I think Apple recently uh, announced that they're working on their, uh, you know, smart glasses or whatever. So it'll be exciting to see. But um, you know, you guys have built an incredible brand. I'm I'm personally a huge fan too, and um, owner of. Uh, what we call Parker glasses and uh, excited to see what you do personally and the brand does next and can't thank you enough for, you know, hanging out with us and sharing your story uh, um, with us and our listeners. Great. Thanks uh, so much for having me on. Yeah. Thanks Dave. <laughs>